All right, well, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. So we're in Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 36 through 50. And the title of the study is, Oh, How Happy. And um, this is, I think, a great description of this, this encounter, at least for one person in this encounter. Um, there's one guy that's not too happy. He's just a grumpy old Pharisee. But uh, there's a really happy, forgiven sinner in this account. In here, we see the tenderness of our Lord. We see him having an unflinching character in the face of social pressure. And I think that although this is not going to be a main point of ours, I would just encourage you, make the application to your own life. That in the face of social pressure, we know who we are. We know where we've come from. We know where we are going. And we know who we are in Christ right now. We're not trying to figure it out. We've got a roadmap in front of us. It's called the Word of God. It's the Spirit who dwells within us. And we can walk with confidence even as we see our Lord walking with confidence. Not only do we see the tenderness of the Lord, but in contrast, we see the harshness of religion. We want to make certain that we never are touching the the edges of this kind of attitude and treatment of other people. It shows us the joy and thankfulness of a person who's been forgiven. Now, as we read this account, it's going to sound very similar to the account that we have in Matthew, Mark, and John. And in those three accounts, it would seem to me, and certainly in John, that we're we're talking about a completely different anointing that's going to take place. So what do we have in common? We're going to have Jesus, we're going to have a woman, and we're going to have costly perfume being poured out. But we have a different scene that's being talked about. In one scene with Mary of Bethany and the Matthew, Mark, and John account, they're at the house of Lazarus, at her house. And um, the scene is a, a time of celebration. They're rejoicing over the fact that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And it's looking right in the face of an impending crucifixion. Jesus even says in John that this anointing was for his burial. When we read in this account here in Luke chapter 7... It's not Mary of Bethany. It's an unnamed woman, but it's a woman of ill repute. We don't know what her sin was, but it's in the house of Simon, a Pharisee. And there's a different scene that unfolds. So while we often confuse the stories because they're so similar, they are distinct and they are two different people that we are talking about. But in both of these events, we do see women coming and just pouring out costly perfume upon the Lord. Let's begin reading there at Luke chapter 7, verse 36. We'll take it down just a couple of verses to verse 38. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Here we see a broken woman coming to Jesus. And the good news is Jesus is still receiving broken people. 
men and women, the coming when their lives are torn apart and messed up. And she finds out that of all places that Jesus is going to be at the house of a Pharisee. We get his name as we work through here down to verse 40. The, the Pharisee's name is, is Simon. And Simon is a harsh man. He's very typical of the thinking. His theology is off. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But many times already we have seen the antagonism that the Pharisees have had towards Jesus. We, we saw Jesus at another meal. Remember he went to the house of Levi? After he called Levi and Levi decided to be a, a follower, Matthew, that Jesus was there and other tax collectors and sinners were there as well because that's the only people that Matthew could have hung out with. That was his contact list, you know? It's like uh, that's who he could call. That's who he could contact. Everybody else had blocked his number. They didn't want any association with him. He was... He truly, an overused word, but he truly was a toxic guy. You didn't want to be caught hanging out with Matthew, the tax collector, because you didn't want to show that you were um, having an allegiance to the Roman Empire. You didn't want anybody to think that you were a sinner or you didn't care about the, the nation that God had, had brought up through Father Abraham. You didn't want to be seen as one that was trying to undermine it. So nobody would have been hanging out with Matthew or, or uh, the tax collector. So when he called people to his house for dinner, <laughs> the only people he could call were a bunch of other sinners and tax collectors, outcasts. So when Jesus was there, though, they began to rebuke him. How dare you would eat with this guy? So the, the attitude that existed towards Jesus and towards sinners was well known. And so she finds out that Jesus is at the house of Simon. She comes anyways. Now, what was the motive of the fair, this Pharisee Simon? We know that as a group they are antagonistic, but it would be unfair to throw everybody into a, uh, that was a Pharisee into a group and say that they, you know, they were all hated the Lord. We even read in Acts that some of the Pharisees were getting saved after the resurrection of Jesus. But based on this encounter, it really doesn't seem like he had any real desire to be taught or instructed by him. Really what he was doing, he was just looking for an opportunity to be able to say, I knew it. This guy is no good. And that, that's, that's somewhat of a, you know, a, a judgment call. I'll let you make your own judgment as we go through this, as we read this text on that. But that seems to be who's there. And I'm painting this picture because I want you to think about you if you're in the place of this woman making the decision to go to a house of Simon the Pharisee. How safe must have Jesus made people feel? Jesus was, he was bigger than social pressure. He was bigger than shame. He was... It was assured in the minds of people that when they came to him, that there would be some kind of protection, there would be some kind of safety, that they would be all right there. And she makes her way. Clearly, she already knew about him. Clearly, she already understood that he was one that received tax collectors and sinners. And that's exactly who she is. She is somebody that is well known as a sinner in this town. But Jesus is not only willing to meet 
and to receive, I should say, uh, a, a woman who's a well-known sinner, but he's also willing to meet with those that are antagonistic towards him. A Pharisee, Simon. And you know, when we read here um, in verse 36, then one of the Pharisees asked, the word asked, um, and we're going to refer to this a couple of times, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a verb in the Greek that speaks of continuous past action, ongoing action. There's a couple of different words for looking back on a scene. There's an aorist, which is like taking a picture. It's a summary shot of what took place. But when you use the imperfect verb, it's, a, it's more like a movie reel. Action is going on. It really tries to communicate ongoing action. And there is a ton of imperfect verbs in here. But you get the idea that he was asking this continuous it wasn't just like a one moment, hey, you want to come? There was a continuing ask, a continuation of this asking, this invitation to come. And Jesus eventually says, yeah, I'll come. I'll come meet with you. Now, who is this lady? Who is this woman that comes? Uh, she's not Mary of Bethany, but the number one um, association that people have uh, or make with this is that this is Mary uh, Magdalene. Now, there's no evidence for that in Scripture. It's, she was one who had demons cast out of her, um, and she was a follower of the Lord. And so people reached the conclusion, I, this is Mary uh, Magdalene. Now, maybe it is. It's not Mary of Bethany, but maybe it's Mary of Magdala. But that's just speculation once again. Now, as we read this, here Jesus is at a, an important man's house having dinner and all of a sudden, she comes bursting in. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, well, who let her in? I mean, what's the situation? I mean, how does somebody just like her get through the front door? When they answered, when they just automatically shut the door. And here's the interesting thing. It was a custom in this, in this geographical area and at this time that when you would have a, a big grand dinner, that people would hang around the edges. Some people would not participate in the meal while it was going on. They could get, take home the leftovers. They were there with their doggy bags, if you know what I mean. But they would sit along the wall, and they would just observe what was going on. So the fact that people would be coming in while this feast is going on, is, it's not a big deal. I mean, to us, it just reads kind of strange. It's like, who let her in? How'd she get in? You know, but in that day, in that culture, there probably would have been other people there as well. And what we read here is that she comes up at verse 30, 38, that she comes in, she has this alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and she stood at his feet behind him. And so, again, we might be thinking about just sitting down to the dinner table. And how is she getting close to his feet? Well, when we read here that Jesus sat down, in verse 36, the word could actually be translated instead of sat down, could be he reclined. So think of the, uh, the Roman triclinium table, right? There's kind of three tables. You got two going down one side, you got one in the middle, and then just, you know, just beneath that, there would be some cushions. And rather than sitting at chairs, you would have been uh, reclining back with your head going towards the food on your left, out, uh, you know, your left elbow, and you would have been eating. So where would have been his feet? They would have been out. So this is how she could come with Jesus kind of, you know, head up here, his feet coming this way. She could have come right up and stood behind him. 
if this is Jesus here. So she comes and she stands. Now, we don't read that there's any kind of eye contact. We don't read that there's any kind of nod. But she comes up, and you can just imagine that as she walks up with this alabaster flask, she knows that this is some amazing man. Um, some have said she's already had an encounter with him and have been forgiven, and now she's returned to just, like, celebrate. Others are like, she knew she could come and find forgiveness, and the very act of coming was her repentance. Okay, so you can, you can make your choice there. The end result is the same. She knows that she's in the presence of one who would forgive her and cleanse her and welcome her. So she comes up behind the feet of Jesus and stands there. Was there an eye contact that took place? I think it's highly likely. It doesn't say it in the text, but you can just imagine her walking up behind him and then him looking back. And in that glance, there was that sense of, it's okay. It's all right. Jesus knew the thoughts and the intents of people. We're going to see this here in this account. He knows what Simon is thinking. And there's no doubt this woman didn't have to say a word of what she was intending to do. He knew what she was intending to do. And you can just imagine that as Jesus sees her coming up behind him, because there, there would have been the gasps. She's entered the room. People would have been looking. I mean, you know how it is. You'd be in the middle of talking, and all of a sudden everybody's like, Looking over there, and you're like, hey, okay, nobody's no longer listening to me. What's going on in the room? And that's what happened. And Jesus gave her that indication of like, I'll receive it. You can come to me. It's okay. And so she does, and she takes this alabaster flask. It would have been kind of a, a, a yellowish-white uh, uh, flask that would have been made from a stone. And in this would have been... A year's worth of wages. You're like, well, they didn't make much back then. That doesn't matter. A year's worth of wages is relative to the person who has the wages that's making it, right? If, it, if, if you're making only, you know, a day, you know, uh, just a day laborer's wage, and it's a year's worth of that, it's a lot of money to you. It's worth a lot of money. And so she comes and a year's worth of wages, and she breaks it. She would have had one of, one of the long kind of necks. She would have broke it, and then she would have began to, to pour this out upon the feet of Jesus. But we know that it is not just the fragrant oil that is put on him, but what else is falling upon his feet? It's her tears. And she's wiping them. Again, there in verse 38, um, we read that... Uh, she was weeping and that she was washing his feet and that she was wiping, uh, wiped them with her hair and that she kissed his feet, that she anointed. So three words in particular here is, um, is wiped, kissed, and anointed. These three verbs, again, are the imperfect. So it isn't like she just did this once. It's, a, it's the idea is of ongoing, continuous action. It just wasn't a couple of tears that fell there. She was there, and many tears were continuing to fall upon his feet. And then she would wipe them off, and then more tears would fall, and then she would wipe them off. And then she's kissing his feet. And one author describes this imperfect uh, a verb here in this context as she was covering his feet with her kisses. I mean, so... You're getting 
a sense of movement and action. This is what Luke is trying to communicate. And then there's that anointing that was taking place. It wasn't just a couple of drops. She emptied the flask on Jesus. And, and of course, everybody is watching. Everybody's uh, amazed that this was taking place. She knew that it was risky business to come and do this. Others, uh, you can read in, in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, when Mary of Bethany anointed the feet of Jesus. Um, different context. She's not noted as a sinner. She's noted as a disciple and a follower of Jesus. What was the response from people? Judas rebuked her. What a waste of money. You could have taken this, we could have sold it, and we could have given money to the poor. And Jesus said, leave her alone. And the Greek there is strong. It's like, enough. He stops him in his tracks and says, she has done this for my burial. And everybody's going to know about it everywhere the gospel is preached. And so you have this, you know, evidence, you know, in Scripture that people were criticizing worship. People were criticizing for following. And she knew that this was the case. I wonder, have you hesitated to come to Jesus? Have you hesitated to come back to Jesus? Afraid of the response that you may get when you come. Afraid that he may say, not you. Not you. Not now. I mean, we can, we can have this exchange, but let's do it in private. Um, I don't want everybody to know that you are connected with me. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is going to come to her defense. I mean, in this day, in this age, women had very little respect in the culture. And if you were this woman, you even dropped down below that. And yet, she was in the safest place. She was there in the presence of the Lord. Sin separates us from God in this life and in the next. And she understood this. And so protocol and culture, it was thrown out the window. I don't care what I'm supposed to do right now. For her to let down her hair. Um, two different authors speak of this. One author says, it was scandalous and indecent. Another one said it was an act of the gravest immodesty. Um, so that she would let down her hair was just, it just added to everything else. It was her reputation that was there. And the, the word for sinner, that she was a sinner, again, is that same imperfect verb that's referring to it. So this isn't just like she had a moment of indiscretion and now was sticking with her. No, she was an ongoing sinful woman. But no longer. Her life has changed. And she is coming. And she is anointing the feet of Jesus and drying the feet of Jesus and kissing the feet of Jesus. And it's a continuous act. It was quite the scene. But don't allow yourself to be held back. What are the things that hold people back? We've listed the things for her, but what holds people back from coming to Jesus? I think sometimes it's just the shame of the sin. And, we, and people get it in their minds. They get it in their thoughts. I can't come. I have sinned too much. I have sinned too long. And I have sinned in the worst way. I can't, I can't come. Nobody's going to want to have me around them. And the Lord says, come. Come to me. 
you're heavy laden, you're wore out, you're broken, come to me and I will receive you. So I don't know what maybe would keep you back from coming to the Lord tonight, whether it's that shame or whether it's that not thinking he would accept you. But we see here that Jesus did. Jesus could have easily brought his feet up to himself and said, ah, you're, you are not touching me, lady. I know who you are, and I've known what you've done. I know more than anybody else. And I can actually begin to listen. She, he could have shamed her in a way that no human being had ever been shamed. But he doesn't pull his feet back. You know, and the very fact that he, she goes to his feet, at one point, that's what's accessible. The feet are sticking out as she comes. But it's also just a sense of humility and saying, I, this is the only thing that I'm worthy to do is to touch your feet and to clean them, and to clean them even with my hair. Well, in verse 39, we see a prideful Pharisee that rebukes Jesus. Now, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So Simon, again, we get his name in verse 40. Simon sees this and he's like, oh my goodness, I knew it. And, and, and again, in the middle of this, it says, the man, if he were a prophet. And the sense is, um, and he's not a prophet. If he were, and he's not a prophet. That, that's the force of, of, this, of this conditional statement. He, if he was a prophet, and he's not, because he doesn't know who she is. Which leads us to this part of Simon's bad theology, right? Simon's theology is a prophet, a man of God, a, a, a godly woman would never have contact with a, an ungodly person. There would never be any, any place for association or connection. But what has Jesus already said? He says, I have come for what? The what? The sick. I've not come for those that are well. They have no need of a physician. I've come for those who are sick. Who are the sick? It's this woman. How can a physician ever help a sick person unless he touches them? She touches them. And Jesus says, I've got to touch this person. I've got to have an encounter with them. I've got to receive this person. So his conclusion is he's not a prophet because he doesn't know what kind of woman she is because if he knew what kind of woman she is he would never ever let her touch him because godly people don't do that well his theology is all messed up god seeks after sinners god makes his way to go after them you know if you if you go back to you know matthew chapter one and, and you just look at the genealogy there in matthew chapter one we see that there are a few ladies that are named in genealogies, which is a rare thing for a woman to be named in a genealogy because the attention was always upon the man. But when we look at this, we see that is not the case. In verse 3, we read, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar. Well, that's a nice name. It is a nice name. But who's Tamar? I'm not going to go into the whole story. But she deceives her father-in-law, 
You've got to go find the whole story, read it on your own, because he's not willing to give a, uh, a, uh, one of his other sons to be married to her because she has no children and other sons have died. And so he lies and he deceives her. So she deceives him, plays a prostitute, and he hires her, not knowing that it was his daughter-in-law, and ends up getting her pregnant. That's Tamar. You keep on reading here, and then we read that, verse 5, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Rahab. Who's Rahab? Here's another woman. She was a prostitute. They're in the city of Jericho. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Who's Ruth? She's not a Jew. (laughs) And neither was uh, uh, Rahab. She was a Moabite. And yet, she, these three women are found in the genealogy of Jesus. And so the Lord goes out of his way in, in this inspiring Matthew to write and shines light upon these women who either, either morally didn't line up or ethnically didn't line up according to the standards of the day. But the Lord says, these are the people. I want you to know about. And so we see that the Lord has time for those that society and culture says we don't have time for. So if you feel like you're one of those people, good news. The Lord has time for you. He has time for you. And maybe you don't look like everybody else wants you to look and you don't act like everybody. I'm not talking about spiritually, morally. You're just, you feel like you're a different person. Well, listen, the Lord loves you and he welcomes you into his presence because he is a physician who has come for the sick. Let's keep on reading verse 40. And Jesus answered and said to him, well, what's the question? There's no question that's been spoken out loud. Where has verse 39 happened? It's happened in his mind. In his mind, he says, if he were a prophet, and I know he's not because he doesn't know what kind of woman she is, because if he knew that, she, he would have never let her touch him. So he's thinking this. And so Jesus answers the discussion that's going on in his mind. Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. So there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. He doesn't even say, you didn't wash me. He said, you didn't even give me the opportunity to wash my own feet. They're laying down, their feet are sticking out. He says, you gave me no opportunity to do this. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Is Jesus rebuking this guy? Yeah, he definitely is rebuking him. Jesus was okay to go through the meal without having water offered to him. 
He was okay to walk into the house and not be greeted with a kiss, which was very customary to have done. Very customary to have done this. Again, you, you go to cultures where they kiss for the greeting. I mean, everybody gets it. Everybody gets a kiss. You go to Costa Rica, you go down to church, Calvary Chapel, Liberia, everybody's going to kiss you. They don't have to know you, they're going to kiss you. That's just, that's how they welcome people. Simon doesn't welcome Jesus. Oh, he's invited to come. And this is why I say he wasn't there to really learn something or to be instructed by him, from him or to, to ask a Bible question that's always plagued his mind and sincerely get an answer. He's there to critique him and evaluate him. And he gets exactly what he wants. Aha, I knew he wasn't a prophet. And Jesus calls him out. He says, you've not been a good host, but this woman, wow, look at her. Look at how she has been treating me. And then in verse 30, uh, 47, actually verse 48, uh, where am I? I think I skipped a verse in my notes here. Let me just get to it. Verse 47, Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So he gives the, this little story about people who have debts. And the greater debt um, would have a greater sense of gratitude connected with, um, uh, to, to that person. So if somebody forgave you 50 bucks, oh, thanks, that is so kind. Somebody forgives you 5,000, wow, don't know what to say. And, and this is the point. Who's going to have a greater sense of gratitude and thankfulness? And he says, well, I guess the guy who's been forgiven more. And then he comes right back to this woman and says, you know, you, you've not shown me any kind of kindness. There's no gratitude. There's no appreciation for me. But she, on the other hand, she can't express her gratitude enough. She's been forgiven much. Yeah, Jesus is agreeing. This is a notable, sinful woman. But I have forgiven all of her sins. It's all gone. It's all clean. And I have wiped it away. And so the Lord says, your sins are forgiven. They're taken care of. They're removed. The action of a merciful God. When Jesus announces that she's forgiven, this causes everybody to gasp. This causes everybody to say, whoa, who, who can do this? Now this reminds us of another encounter that Jesus had, right? Remember when the paralytic um, was brought by his friends and they let him down through the roof and came right into the center of the room and Jesus um, is talking, says, hey, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are like, ah, who can do this? God alone can forgive this. It was all in their head, right? They don't say it out loud. They're just thinking it. And the Lord says, so you can know, in case you're wondering, that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your bed and walk. And he is immediately healed, which is a way of saying, if I can say to this man, stand up and walk, who's been paralyzed, and he walks out the door, you can know that I'm a man that has power and authority to forgive his sins. So 
the same question. Well, who can forgive sins but God? And that is, and the answer, the question is right. Who can forgive sins? Only God can forgive. But Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. He is God in the flesh. He can forgive sins, which means all of us have to do with only one person, and that is God. There's only one person who can forgive your sins, and that is God. I can forgive you of some kind of infraction that's happened between myself and you. You can forgive me, but the Lord has to forgive all of us for our sins. And nobody else can forgive you of your sin towards God except for God alone. Because the question and the statement is right, only God can forgive sins. But Jesus can do that. That's why you've got to come to the Lord. That's why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through Him. Because He's the only way by which your sin can be forgiven. He alone has died on the cross. He alone rose from the dead. And so He can forgive your sins. He can say, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. And your sins are forgiven you. But you got to come and you got to deal with Jesus. There's one mediator, right? It's Jesus is the mediator between God and man. We must come through him. You can't come any other way. Well, I'm going to clean my life up, and then I'm going to come to the Lord. Well, you might be able to make a progression in your life from being less sinful than you are right now, but you're still going to be a sinner, but you'll also have your entire past to deal with. What are you going to do with this? You can't just lop it off and act like it never was there, because it is your life. They're your actions. How will you deal with that? Even if you can clean yourself up and, and begin to live a different way. That's commendable. But you've got to deal with your sin. It's a debt you have to God. And it's only Jesus who can forgive sins. Now, what is different between the paralytic that is forgiven and this woman who's forgiven is there is no proof of sorts. For the paralytic, a miracle is performed. He stands up and walks out. It's like, well, I guess he can. But now the question is, how can he say this? I mean, how can he say that he forgives us? Who is he? Well, again, he's, he's God in the flesh to do this. But what's the evidence? Well, there's a couple of things I want to just bring up here. And, and, and that is this. God doesn't have to prove anything to you or me or to anybody on planet Earth. He is sovereign God over all. He can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. And it doesn't matter if the whole world gathers together and they say, you're wrong. Well, if all men come against the Lord and question Him, the Scripture says all men are liars. God doesn't have to prove anything to you. God doesn't have to prove anything to me. It is His mercy and His grace that we have the Word of God that shows the ways in which He communicated who He was. I mean, who likes it when somebody says to us, prove it? That's a challenge for what you're saying or what you're teaching or what you're, you're trying to put forward. Well, I think this. Oh, yeah, we'll prove it. It's an attack against your character. The Lord doesn't have to prove anything to any of us. And yet He is merciful and kind. So we have no miracle here of healing. 
But there is a miracle. A miracle has happened. This woman is a notable sinner. And she makes her way into the presence of Jesus. And now she's gripped with thankfulness. She's gripped with joy. These are, these are, I guess it depends on how you want to see it. And again, there are two camps. There's a one, she's already had an encounter with Jesus, and she's coming back to repay him uh, worship and thanksgiving. So if that's the case, then you see a transformed woman. And these tears are tears of thankfulness and appreciation, tears of joy. I'm forgiven. I am clean. How clean must have she felt or anticipated being made clean for her to come into this situation. So there is the evidence of a changed life that's right in front of them. They knew her so well, and yet she's a different lady now. I mean, this woman probably didn't take much lip from these guys. That would be my take on it, okay? That's just my own input. People coming by, calling out, saying things. I'm sure she had... Quite a few good responses to these guys. She's dealt with them before. It's a small little village. But none of that's going on. She is a changed woman. She is full of thankfulness and grace. So in verses 40 through 46, we see Jesus teaching on thankfulness. In verses 47 through 50, we see that Jesus forgives those who come in faith. She is coming in faith. The title that we gave is, Oh, How Happy. Psalm 32.2 says, Blessed is the man, or oh, how happy, is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. How happy is the person whom the Lord does not charge with their guilt and charge them for the debt that they have. It is a happy day to have things forgiven. It's a happy day to have a debt released. And the psalmist says, man, blessed, oh, how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And the late, this lady understands this. I'm not guilty anymore. I've been forgiven by the Son of God. And so there is this overflow of worship. There is this overflow of thankfulness. And nothing is too demeaning. Nothing is too threatening when you're talking about Jesus. To be at the feet of Jesus is more than she would have deserved anyways. And remember when a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning, months probably, we talked about worship. The word worship is pros, towards, and cuneo, kiss, to kiss towards. Literally, the word worship is to kiss towards. And especially um, you know, in these cultures, if, if you know, two people of equal rank came, they would kiss each other on the cheek. But if you were of a lower rank, you would bow to kiss their what? Their feet. And that's where she's been. She, this is worship. She's worship. She's kissing towards and she is kissing his feet because, oh, how happy is she? She's been found. She was lost. She was you know, cast off, but now she's been brought near. And Jesus says here that it's her faith, your faith, verse uh, 50, uh, at the end of verse 50, your faith has made you, uh, has saved you. Go in peace. This is 
how all people are saved. She's not saved by the act that she has done. That's the evidence of the grace that's touched her life. Evidence of saved people is worship. It's thankfulness. It's celebration. And that's why it's so fitting. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. She wasn't going to go around boasting. Oh, I'm forgiven because I washed the feet of Jesus. Have you washed the feet of Jesus? I don't think so. No. She understood that it was faith. That he is the one that has the power to forgive sins. That allowed her to be forgiven. So, yeah, we can't earn it. We close here with one last verse. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did Christ die for you? When you're a sinner. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If Jesus died for you when you were a sinner and you have been reconciled, why now would we begin to think that salvation is not ours? I mean, if, you've already, if he's already gone through the, the work of a his atoning death, and he's already reconciled himself to you, then believer, why would you think that God wants nothing to do with you now? If there ever was a time when God wanted nothing to do with us, it would have been before he died on the cross for the sins of the world. It would have certainly happened before he received you to himself and applied that work of atonement on your life and brought you into an eternal relationship with him. Now that you have experienced this, you think God is done with you now? And you know what Paul's saying in Romans is much more. Much more. He uses that ver- that twice in verse 9. He talks about much more having now been justified by his blood and then again in verse 10 in the middle of us much more having been reconciled. The the, the possibility and the, or the certainty of your forgiveness and your relationship with God is more certain now than ever before because you've been justified and because Jesus came and died on the cross. And yet, there's a lot of Simons that are floating around in our mind, isn't there? There's a lot of Simons that are there to say, He doesn't love you. He doesn't want you. You're dirty. You're unclean. You're disgusting. You're a failure. You're a limit of a Christian. These are, none of these words are the words that the Spirit of God uses. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. We're pretty good at accusing each other at times. But what does Jesus say to the woman that was caught into, in adultery? He asks her what question? Woman, where are your what? Accusers. There are none. And neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. So does this mean that how we live our lives doesn't matter and we can just engage in sin and dive into sin? No. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And as I have said for years, the person who sees this kind of grace and this kind of mercy of God and the forgiveness and the price that he paid and says, oh good, now I can go really live it up in sin. Clearly you're not saved. 
You've, you've not had the first encounter with the presence of God to change your heart and, and, and life. Because this, this is what happens. When you get saved, it's not just that your sins are forgiven. Your attitude towards sin is changed. God writes upon your heart the commands that you're to walk in to love God and to love people. And that's the entirety of the law. And it, 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 it compels us to follow after him. And so while Jesus was there in person to defend this woman against the unspoken accusation, I want you to know that Jesus is still doing that. There's probably more unspoken accusations that happen in your own head that will ever happen outside of your head by other people. That's your Simon. That's my Simon. But the Lord speaks to that. Our response to all of this should be just overwhelming praise and worship. The woman held back nothing. She poured it all out. She was, I mean, you know, listen, let's be honest, let's be candid. There's a lot of people that are afraid and embarrassed to sing out loud because of what people are going to think of them. There's a lot of people that are afraid to bow before the Lord because we're afraid of what people are going to think. Or to lift our hands because we're afraid of what people are going to think. This woman doesn't get that. She's like, I don't care who's here or what they're going to say or what they're going to think. You can just imagine her rummaging through her house and grabbing that. What are you looking for? What are you getting? I'm getting that alabaster flask. Well, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to cash it in? No, I'm not going to cash it in. Jesus is over at Simon's house, and I'm going to go pour this on, on him. I'm going to anoint him. No, don't, don't you dare do that. You can just imagine the types of conversations. But she's a determined woman that comes and is like, I am going to go to a place I don't belong, and yet I belong because I'm forgiven. And so understand the place we have in the presence of Jesus as forgiven and cleansed people. And may we never hold back our praise and our worship and our thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you that you're a God of mercy and that you're a God of grace, that you forgive that you reconcile, that you justify. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts afresh, to those of us that are saved and have had our sins forgiven, that, Lord, we would remember that they're still forgiven. They weren't just forgiven at the moment we repented. Lord, once for all, It's paid in full completely. There's no debt. And may we respond appropriately in worship and thanksgiving and fellowship.